Today we're going to talk about awe, and I don't mean like, oh, how cute that puppy is. I mean awe like, wow, that is really awesome, which is a word that we use too much. But we're going to talk about things that are really awesome and what awe is and how it can inspire learning and help learning happen with Dr. Megan Cozzolino on this episode of the Learning Geeks podcast, starting now. Hello, everybody. Welcome. Hey, Bob. Hey, Jake. Hey, Bob. Hi, Meg. Hey, Dana. Hello. Hi, Jake. Hi, Megan. Hey, Dana. <laughs> Good night, John Boy. Uh, before we dive into the topic, how, how is everybody doing? We are recording this on a snowy uh, January afternoon, allegedly, for some of you. It's still beautiful out here. I'm amazed Beach. that it is already more than halfway through January. I'm not sure what happened. Like It seemed like the holidays were like yesterday and boom we're halfway through the mm-hmm. january i agree same I, same yeah my it's uh, crazy. my hands are still recovering from about uh 30 <laughs> minutes ago when i just took a walk to get the kids but it's about five degrees oh fahrenheit i think here with really windy conditions so below windshield or and below, below your wind, wind did you say wind chill cool. or windshield I think you said real shield, but his, his lips are still frozen. Yeah, exactly. His lips are still frozen. My hands are. My hands are still like that burning sensation you get after the. Uh, it's probably sixty degrees below windshield too. But we've got lots of snow, but it's uh, forty-three degrees out. So uh, I'm not picking kids up from the elementary school, but oh, wow. um, going for a walk after this. I'm clocking sixty-three. You know, we just ran out to In and Out and got a burger for lunch. So oh. it was good. That sounds good. good. But hey, enough of this. Uh, Let's welcome Megan into the conversation. Dana, I'm going to toss it to you to to introduce our friend Megan. Perfect. So uh, just a little bit of background. Dr. Megan Cozzolino is a researcher and educator with expertise in cognition and development, instructional design, and public engagement with science. So she's got a lot of science background. As a doctoral student at the Harvard Graduate School of Education, her research focused on the emotion of awe, as Bob mentioned earlier, and specifically on the the role of awe in scientific learning and discovery. Before that, Megan was an elementary and middle school science teacher. So you got a lot of science going on here, Megan. And also a science education analyst at the National Science Foundation and a research assistant for several projects on complex causal learning. She holds degrees in human development from Harvard Graduate School of Education and in psychology from Harvard College. Megan, when we first met, my team was doing some research on curiosity and learning and our mutual friend, Tessa Forshaw, that you work with on a regular basis, sent me your direction because of this research in awe. So I was fascinated by the interviews you did and um, with scientists and, and their experience with awe. Your recent research, however, has focused a little bit more on something you call everyday awe. So with that setup, there's just a lot to unpack. Maybe- you Dana, that was s- amazing. That all came right out of your head, right? I, like the, no, you just I read made it. all of that up. Oh, I read did? it. I just oh. made it sound like it's coming off my head. Yeah. <laughs> um, so maybe we start to unpack this by defining what is awe and what is everyday awe. Maybe it's just, you know, there's good places to start. Yeah, sure. Well, hi, thanks for having me. I'm so happy to be here. Um, So awe is defined in the research literature, um, the sort of 
quintessential definition that everybody cites is that awe has two main components. One is the perception of vastness. That could be physical vastness, or just something huge that you're observing, but it could also be vast temporally. It could be vast in complexity. It could be vast in, um, you know, sort of conceptually. Something could be vast in power. So there are lots of different ways that things can be vast, but that's one piece. The other piece is that um, awe involves a need for accommodation. And what's meant by that is that when you experience awe, you're experiencing something that you can't just sort of fold into what you already know about the world. It's shifting your perception in some way. You have to accommodate your mental model of how the world works in order to make sense of this new information. And so um, Dr. Keltner and Jonathan Haidt are the two scholars who kind of advanced this idea of awe, which is the one that everybody tends to cite. Of course, there are squabbles in the field. Um, and, you know, when we think about awe, I think what comes to mind often is people thinking about visiting a national park or witnessing the birth of your child or something like that. But as Dana mentioned, I've been focusing more on everyday awe. And these are things that are kind of more attainable in your daily life, right? Just catching the light on the water on the pond that you work you walk by in just the right way and it, you know, takes your breath away for a moment or just being awed by you know, something your kid says or something that your colleague does. Right? So just these kind of little moments of awe that are accessible to us in our daily lives. So Megan, I live uh, three hours from each of the, the big five national parks in Utah. And I was thinking that the word, the name Utah actually has awe at the last part of it. It's spelled differently. <laughs> oh my but goodness. You needed the dad joke, right? Wow. <laughs> That should be their, their, uh, you need to reach out to their tourism yeah. board. See yeah, the exactly. in Utah. Yeah. And California. <laughs> well, no, that's stretching it. <laughs> okay. Keep going. So, so Megan, what is it, what is it about awe that intrigued you uh, enough that you wanted to study it as in depth as you did? So as you mentioned, a lot of the science in my background, um, really the study of how other people learn science primarily. So my own background is more in the social sciences, um, you know, psychology, human development. I've always been interested in how people learn. Um, and before I started my doctoral work, I was an elementary and middle school science teacher and was so struck by the way that kids talked about science as a way of knowing and the way that they used science to sort of make sense of the world and the ways that emotion helped facilitate their engagement with science. And in particular, um, I came upon some research that talked about awe as being particularly valuable in the context of science learning because it orients you to something that may be um, surprising or novel or counterintuitive, right? This idea of the need for accommodation that happens all the time when we're learning science because so many of the concepts are a little bit mind boggling or they go against what we believe to be true. And so I was, I started out being really interested in what can awe do for us as science teachers um, to help kind of leverage kids' emotional engagement and help them understand science. And I thought, you know, I could talk to kids and I, I will and I did eventually, but I also wanted to get right to the source and talk to professional scientists about their experiences of awe. And I thought they were going to talk mainly about kind of big conceptual understandings, right? They, they were awed by the scope of the universe, you know, in terms of size or time, and they were awed by the complexity of what they were studying. And they did. Those things came up. You know, someone talked about being awed by like the beauty of the human genome. Um, but the what's I discovered when I spoke to scientists was that the thing that was most commonly the elicitor of awe 
was moments of discovery in their own work. So these little aha moments. And I say little intentionally. I mean, they weren't, most of them said, you know, we're not going to win the Nobel Prize for this discovery, <laughs> but it's unlocking one little more new secret of the universe. And especially they talked about, you know, for that moment, I'm the only one who knows this thing, right? Um, and so it was these little moments of discovery that generated awe for them. And the biggest takeaway from it, which has translated into my current work, is that those feelings were really deeply associated with motivation. And so scientists said, like, look, you can glamorize science all you want, but at the end of the day, it's a lot of failure. You're trying a lot of experiments that don't work over and over again. The pay is not great, although it's better than in a lot of professions. The hours are terrible. <laughs> it's not really that exciting most of the time, but you get these moments every now and then, and that's what keeps me coming back. That's what they said over and over again. Those moments are what allow me to persist in this challenging profession. And so that has now shaped the current work that I'm doing that is looking at awe in the context of work more generally. So we know what awe does in the context of science as a profession. What does that look like in other contexts at work? We don't normally have the video, right? People are listening to podcasts, but any for the, those of you who are listening to podcasts, if you could see Megan smiling and being so excited <laughs> about this topic, you can tell there's a lot of passion behind it. She might've had a moment or two in, of awe when you were figuring this stuff out, right, Megan? It's very meta. Yeah, 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 yeah. I experience awe all the time, <laughs> hearing other people's stories of awe and putting the pieces together, realizing what these big findings are. So outside of that, Megan, I mean, one of the questions I was thinking about before this is you personally, and because I, I actually, I did read, I, I read one of your articles that you sent out and you actually shared that story about scientists. And then I was thinking of you as a scientist. So what what's the type of, small moments of awe that you feel during the day and those types of examples that I think could be helpful for others to hear. Yeah, well, in the context of my work as a qualitative researcher, I'm, I love hearing people's stories. That's what, you know, I came from a psychology background and initially assumed I'd be sort of in the psych lab doing, doing more, you know, kind of uh, controlled experiments. And I discovered qualitative research when I was in grad school and just fell in love with it because I realized I get to just hear people tell their stories all day or read what people write and sort of try to construct some meaning from it. And so for me, I think um, hearing, hearing individual stories, but then also putting the puzzle pieces together um, of, you know, there's some sort of thematic synergy here across a body of individual stories that's telling us something bigger um, is a big source of awe for me. And in fact, is one of um, the sort of main sources of awe. Dr. Keltner, who I mentioned, who's sort of the awe guy, he's got a book that came out this past year. Um, he talks about epiphany as one mm -hmm. of the main sources of awe. And I think researchers for sure feel that. Um, and then I guess the other source of awe for me that somebody who has a, a background in human development is that I have a four and a half year old daughter and just the things that she says and does, um, I look at from a, with my parenting hat on and my kind of scholar hat on and I'm sort of awed in different ways uh, through both of those lenses. That's so great. Megan, I'm curious in your research, have you gotten into like what is actually happening in the brain during those moments of awe? You know, what, what are we seeing? What are we seeing going on biologically? Yeah, great question. So I haven't personally, that's not my area of study, but others have started to. Um, and a lot of it is kind of more physiological. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, for instance, people have kind of studied 
the body's reaction to awe and um, aside from being cold, awe is like the primary generator of goosebumps. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, it's there's clearly and people, you know, you have a um, quickened heart rate and all of the sort of things that are, you know, sort of general emotional arousal are clearly happening in when somebody experiences awe. Um, in terms of what's happening in the brain, I think we can, I can answer that more at a kind of a cognitive level than a neurological level. Um, so I think that, you know, we know that people, um, when, as I mentioned, awe helps people identify gaps in their understanding. And so we see that people are, um, so there's studies, for instance, that frame, um, information as either just it's sort of presented or it's presented as surprising and that people are more willing to kind of click on it and read the story if it's presented as surprising because that's sort of enticing but they're also more likely to change their mind about something um, if the information is presented as surprising because you're sort of primed for it to be this counterintuitive thing and so this is research that's coming more out of the kind of science communication literature but it sort of holds true when we think about that um awe sort of requires being open to that experience. And awe is both trait-based and state-based. And what I mean by that is the, the trait piece is some people are more dispositionally inclined to experience awe than others. So they're, and it's tied to the sort of big five hmm. personality kind of components, right? So people who are, have a who kind of score higher on openness to experience are more likely to experience awe regularly because they're willing to have their minds changed or opened by some sort of novel experience that's maybe counter to what they've experienced before. So that's the trait piece that sort of you have a trait sort of, sort of how how awe prone are you? But there are it's also state based, meaning you might be in some states that are more likely to elicit awe than others. And there's a lot of universality to that in terms of um, the kinds of things that that elicit awe most frequently. So I mentioned epiphany as one. Um, moral beauty is another one. So some stories of people being kind or courageous or strong, right? Hearing about that tends to elicit awe in people. Nature, obviously, music, art, um, kind of collective effervescence is another one that I really love, you know, going to a concert or a worship service, right? Anywhere that people sort of are in community having a shared experience. So, um, so there are these, and these are, there's some differences that are starting to emerge in a little bit of cross-cultural research that's, that's been done. But for the most part, these are fairly universal elicitors of awe. And you're sort of, if you're in a state where you're experiencing something like that, you're going to be more likely to feel awe than if you're just kind of sitting around at home. So Megan, we have a lot of folks who listen to this, who are in the trenches of designing instruction right? Um, the, the hardcore instructional design, designers, and you've got some of that background yourself. If, if uh, What's the role of instructional designers in trying to build awe experiences in their training? I, it probably depends on the topic, but I mean, what what's some of your thinking around the relationship between uh, learning design and awe? I think the big missing piece here that instructional design can fill is reflection. So when I talked to scientists, they were telling me different things at the end of the hour than they were when they started, because the interview itself sort of served as an opportunity for reflection. And had I done that study, if I were doing it now, um, I might 
build in a follow-up interview because I felt like, oh, we're just getting started now that the interview's <laughs> over because I've, we've been able to sort of start to unpack these ideas together over the course of an hour. Um, and I did another study that was looking at experiences of awe and kind of ideas around a sense of connectedness or interconnectedness um, in adolescents who are in summer science programs. And so I was, that were sort of designed to help kids feel a sense of connection to at different scales. One was much more sort of how can you help your community through science? And another one was looking at kind of big bang to the present right, in six weeks. Um, so very different scales, but in both ways, sort of trying to un have a sense of um, connection to the scientific phenomena they were studying and that I was looking at how might awe help facilitate that sense of connection. And again, the place where I saw it the most was in kids' journals. So when they had opportunities to reflect as part of the practice of the class, that's where I saw those ideas kind of most richly expressed. But even still, when I asked them, like, so you're feeling this sense of awe, you're feeling this sense of connectedness to the universe or to your ecosystem, whatever it is. So what? They didn't have a whole lot to say about, you know, the, well, because I feel that way, I'm going to change my behaviors to be more, you know, ecologically friendly or whatever it is, which is sort of what I was hoping for is the end goal, right? And so there was a missing piece of the so what there. And I think that's where instructional design really comes into play is helping people notice those moments and leverage them and leveraging them requires reflection on what does this mean for me? Yeah, that's very similar to some of the approaches that we've used around this is all tied together around more creative learning experiences, right? So like I've always had the philosophy that anything can be a learning experience about almost any topic. Uh, it, it all depends on the debrief, right? Which is the reflection. So, you know, if you have somebody who can guide you from, from the experience that you have into reflecting on it and in getting to the lessons that you would have them learn from that experience, uh, that's what we need to do to make it click. And Bob, as you're saying that, there are times, you know, we, sometimes we talk about having a group reflection. And sometimes uh, those fail for me because I need time and space. I need to go for a walk. And a lot of times mm -hmm. my, my personal reflections are most profound when I'm out in doing my morning walk or doing the bike ride. And I just turn off the podcast or turn off the radio or whatever I'm listening to and just kind of get in the moment and think about what it is I've been reading or studying or things that are going on. And uh, th those reflective moments can be really profound. So I think designers can build them in. I think there's also a component and we talk about uh, learning durability as going you know, beyond a particular learning event. So may maybe there's a role in uh, instructional designers encouraging when you get away from the learning event build in time to, to reflect, put time in your calendar to just think about stuff. Uh, and, and that time in your calendar could be going out for a walk. Mm -hmm. Megan, I was also thinking about this question similar to Dana's where, you know, again, our roles in learning professionals, talent developers, whatever you, your title is, we often get told we have to in, continually engage our employees in whatever skill development they're a part of. So, you know, we just talked about some examples of what we can do in instruction. There's also some things that, you know, I've learned from your work around even in, in institutional barriers that ex could exist. So I'd love to hear from you. What do you think some in institutional barriers are to preventing awe 
as well as like, is that a new opportunity that us as from the learning hmm. profession can actually see as a new opportunity outside of just common instruction, but things that we can do to allow the good learning to occur, but we can also do something else yeah. to those barriers. I can answer this question concretely in the context of science. And then it's a question I'm still puzzling over kind of more generally um, and hoping that some of the new research we're doing will help to eliminate that. So the barriers that, that scientists talked about were things that prevented them from doing the kinds of research that most commonly lead to awe, which involves a lot of just messing around right? and trying <laughs> ideas that may or may not be successful. Um, and, you know, so people talked about like, I've got to get my work published. I've got to get funding. I'm trying to get tenure. Like I've got all of these pressures to produce. Um, but the kinds of things that lead to awe are when I have time to just explore and be playful and test ideas and not have to worry about whether it's going to be some huge finding or, um, you know, how many publications I'm going to get out of it because, you know, it's a huge problem in, in the research world, but nobody wants to publish null findings. Right? So, um, <laughs> if you try something and you don't get any, any results or, you know, your hypothesis falls flat. Um, it's back to the drawing board, but those are the kind of high risk, high reward, you know, potentially high reward um, studies often lead to awe, but the high risk keeps people from trying them because they want to do things that are just going to move their career forward. So in the context of science, the, the I think there are barriers to you know, creativity and exploration because people are focused on product. Um, and I spoke to a number of scientists who had left academia and had gone into either teaching or industry or policy because they just felt burned out by that kind of drive toward producing. Um, I think there are probably parallels in other fields too, right, where you just have to stay on the straight and narrow and focus on output and it doesn't allow for the kind of creativity um, and exploration that that might generate awe. But I think the, the more we learn about what elicits awe in other contexts, that'll, that'll help us then sort of work backwards from there and think what might be the barriers. So I've, I've recently launched a um, kind of pilot phase of a new survey exploring um, what are the kind of features of awe experiences at work and what are the impact of those experiences. And we're, it's early days, but we've got, you know, a, almost 50 respondents so far to this kind of pilot survey. And we're starting to look at the data and seeing a lot of things related to sense of meaning, right? So people feeling like their work has a purpose, not just that it brings them joy because it's a fun thing to do, but that they see impact, that they see my work has, it's impacting. And that could be, the scale might be millions of people, or it might be one person, but we've got healthcare providers talking about help, helping patients. We've got teachers talking about helping students. And we've talked, you know, I, there's a story of someone who works in affordable housing talking about running into an elderly gentleman in the elevator who said, this is the first time in my 83 years that I felt housing stability. And she'd had mm -hmm. a really lousy day. And now all of a sudden through this run-in, she's reminded of, you know, why her work matters. And so that seems to be one of the um, biggest elicitors of awe for, for people, um, kind of cross sector, or at least, you know, in the sort of helping professions. And it will be interesting to compare that to, to other kinds of professions. But, um, so we see a lot of that. And I think if those 
the impact is not visible, that's a huge barrier to awe, right? An institutional barrier is like, I don't see my work making a difference. Um, a great counter example to this is there was a study that focused on archival data from the years of in NASA, the Apollo missions um, leading up to the moon landing. And the title of the paper is I'm not mopping floors, I'm putting a man on the moon. And so it really was analyzing the rhetorical devices that President Kennedy and others used that led to awe across NASA. So everybody from the engineers to the custodial staff felt like they were part of this shared mission and they understood how their individual tasks made a difference. So I think that's a way of getting past that barrier is by helping people make those connections to see how their daily tasks are contributing to some larger whole. I was just going to oh, say you're trying to move them from naw to awe. There we go. <laughs> I needed one more. There. You got to get that one in. In Utah. So, in Utah. Uh, <laughs> oh. I, we can definitely relate to the, the drive to producing, mm -hmm. especially with the three of us who are in a professional services organization. And I think that is something that our learners or colleagues that we um, support are always faced with is the, the need and the drive to produce. And I'm actually curious like to Bob and Dana, going back to you real quick, because of the three of us in an innovation research role for a company, I'm wondering what you have seen when people do work on projects or even maybe yourselves from when you've gone from maybe the daily grind of the classic projects, instructional design projects that you've done in the past to then do more innovation roles. Have you felt the difference between this drive to produce, I'm sure it's there, but to our role, which is very exp exploratory. We want to explore, we're trying to test. And I, I'm just curious, have you seen even yourself difference or personally seen how that can link to awe in, in the role that we do? Jake, as you asked that question, what comes to my mind is some of the research projects that I've been on that have taken longer than management has wanted. Right. It's like, yeah, you need to come up with an answer faster. Like, well, OK, but, you know, we haven't looked at all the aspects of the research we need to be looking at. And um, so so fortunately, right, with with some of the previous bosses, including my current boss, they've given time to say, OK, well, we're, we're going to ease up the time pressures, get the answer right. And when there's time to get the answer right and, and you've you're sure that you've kind of examined all of the critical facets um, and then you start to put together a model right, that, that, that you can communicate to others. To me, that's, those have been the most profound because the things that I've learned have been most deeply embedded in, in who I am and, and, and what I think. And that makes it, so when I go out and I talk about learn to learn, when I talk about durable learning, I don't need any reference material. I've got that stuff in my head. And, and mm -hmm. so I've, and be, because I've made those connections, those associations, which I think are all in some ways, like all these little aha moments that have pieced together a complex puzzle. Yeah. yeah. I don't know if that makes sense at all, but that's, that's where my head went <laughs> when you uh, ask. And, you know, I was, I was thinking, Jake, it, it, it kind of pulls together everything that we've been talking about for me, because I, I do feel a lot of, of what your research scientists feel, Megan, in terms of yeah, we lead an innovation organization and therefore we, we need to have freedom to fail, right? In order to try new things, you need to have freedom to fail. And I think we do get a fair amount of that from our leadership, mm -hmm. but you can't fail infinitely. 
you know, you, you have to have some successes in there to keep adding business value to uh, to keep the lights on on your on your business. So you do still feel that pressure. But for me, it is those moments where you do try something new and you land on something and you feel that moment of awe, right? Of like, wow, this is really working. This is going to work. Yeah. This is going to work. And you have that excitement and you get that same uh, trigger that I think the scientists that Megan talked to feel. And then knowing that if that works for you, it is going to have an impact on people, right? Like what, what keeps me going is the idea that I can have a significant impact on making the lives of over 700,000 people who work for our company better uh, because they'll be able to do their work better and it'll be more enjoyable for them and they'll be able to make more of a contribution. So you do see where that purpose lies and that Mm -hmm. all adds up to making it work for me. Yeah, and and I would say for me, the one thing that brings me uh, like as I've been reflecting on it, so the way that our team works for the from the innovation side, we have a kind of a rotation model where we don't have anybody technically staffed to the research team and other than really me. And then we have some that are certain percentage, but I find a lot of value in seeing people who are kind of in the daily grind building courses mm-hmm. or you know supporting programs and then they get 6 to 8 weeks and sometimes more to work on an uh, an R&I project. Mm-hmm. And and then to see that exploratory mode get they have time dedicated for that and it's just this you see growth. You start to see them explore, you got to see them ask these tough questions, you get to see them push themselves more than they ever had before. That's something that brings me awe seeing that that development process and the excitement when they get that time to do it. And then I've also seen that translate into those moments, the small moments for them as they kind of try to implement that into their everyday projects or go and support other teams to do it as well. It's pretty, like that to me brings me that all and that's something that keeps me going. So again, I've just been from a, the meta side as we've been kind of discussing this and reading it before, I've been paying attention more to, like I think it's other people's awes that give me awe yes, from it. Right. You know, that's that's what's exciting. So awe is a multiplier of sorts. It is, right? Yeah. That's always been one of my prime drivers as a learning developer, right? Was seeing the light bulbs go on in people's eyes. So when they have yeah. those moments of awe, uh, that's really exciting for me. Yeah. I wanted to go back to your question about barriers because I was just thinking about, I listened to your your year-end wrap-up episode um, and you were, I think it was Bob, I can't remember, who talked about reskilling and upskilling and sort of ways in which that language um, lacks some acknowledgement of human experience and the emotional level of work. It can be scary. Yeah. Yeah, and that it's, you know, if somebody's told you've got to find a new line of work because your job is disappearing due to automation or whatever it is. And someone says, but I liked this line of work. It's core to my identity. Right? <laughs> yeah. don't, I don't want to just go learn how to code. Right? And I think um, that's a piece of the conversation that struck me as really missing as I started to orient to the literature on workforce development when I took on the role that I'm in now is, you know, 
they're, they're real people who might be getting the skills they need to be successful in a new job, but that their sense of purpose uh, might not have come along for the ride. And so I think that's a big motivator for me in doing the work I'm doing right now is how do you help individuals you know, think about what are the conditions for awe and can they find them right in their work? And then, but also how can you help employers um, cultivate those conditions um, and help people make those connections that, you know, your work matters, you're part of this bigger thing. I'm going to show you, I'm going to make that visible. I'm going to make that accessible um, because it's, you know, I think we're, it's so, there's rightly so a lot of emphasis on getting people into jobs and getting into people into jobs that aren't going anywhere. But we think it's that those are, they're real people with feelings and preferences and identities who have to be, you know, feel a sense of connection to the work. So Megan, you said you you are just starting this new batch of surveys and, and work. I, I'm just wondering, when do we have you back? When will you have some more insights to share? <laughs> Anytime. I mean, so we're, we're sort of analyzing this pilot data now, which we really just cast a wide net and sent out the survey on our, you know, our newsletter and our LinkedIn. And so it's a very, it's a broad sample, but also kind of a skewed sample based on who our network is. But this was really just our first attempt at trying out the survey, see if people understood the questions, see what we would get. And there's some rich data there, but our next step is some organizational partnerships that we're still in the process of securing. So we think we've got a few places lined up, but we're in in the midst of trying to collaborate with different places um, who want to, you know, starting with the survey and then probably interviews and I, moving towards some kind of development of some resources that we might try to test out that, you know, some learning experiences to help um, people you know, try to cultivate the sense of awe in the workplace and see what that looks like in practice. So um, envisioning this as a multi-phase endeavor and would love to be back at any time to to share what we find as we find it. One of the things I really like about the, the work that I've seen you and, and uh, Tessa and Tina do is that you try to move from theoretical to practical, right? Let's let's under, first understand what what's going on and then let's figure out how can we help that go on if it's a good thing. Yeah, we were having, Tessa and I were having a conversation, Tessa Forshaw, who listeners will will know, but she's a colleague of mine at the Next Level Lab. And um, we were having a conversation with a potential partner today and they said, you know, it's this, these findings seem like, you know, we're happy to help you with the survey, but it actually sounds like the findings might help us too. And we said, well, we sure hope so, because that's the goal. Like, right. we don't, you know, we don't, con we're not the kind of lab that's conducting research in a vacuum. Everything that we do is applied and with a goal towards helping practitioners do their work better um, and really tackling problems that are going on in the field. So, um, so I, you know, we certainly hope that anything that we do would help, not just us, but um, that we can share those findings back in ways that are accessible and actionable. Well, we're excited for it. We can't wait for more. That'll be great. Uh, Megan, thanks for joining us today. This has been fantastic. Thank you so Megan. much for having me. Yeah, always a pleasure. Good to see you. And um, if people want to get a hold of you or learn more about your research, where can they find you on the interwebs? Well, I guess the, you can Google me, Meg, you know, <laughs> Megan Cusolino, and I'm the Harvard one. I actually have a, a cousin-in-law who's a yoga instructor in New York with the same name. So if you want some yoga, find her. There if you go. She's me, great at it, for um, sure. Yeah. I'm, I'm the Harvard one or the Cambridge <laughs> one. Um, and um, you can also look up the Next Level Lab, um, nextlevellab.com 
gse.harvard.edu, I think is our, our website. But if you Google that, you'll find us too. And that's where the work on all lives and also all the other work that our lab is doing. Well, Megan, thanks again. Uh, Jake and Dana, as always, thank you for a great podcast. Great seeing you. And to all of our listeners, thank you for tuning in and listening. Uh, make sure you hit that like and subscribe. And we will see you on the next episode of the Learning Geeks podcast coming real soon. But until then, stay geeky, my friends. Bye. Bye-bye. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, Thank you.